We were really encouraged to find a path of happiness, but with an expectation of service and contribution. They wouldn't just give you the answer. You had to kind of go to a bit of effort to try and find it, right? And pre-internet, that was a bit of effort. I was sitting there in the audience thinking, oh, I could do this. So next year, year nine, I enrolled in debating at school and it became actually a really big part of my life. Hi, I'm Alison Lloyd-Wright. Uh, I am an executive director at the Department of Premier and Cabinet. You could be asked to argue each one. So the first thing that makes you do is really see the kind of nuance and complexity in a lot of different things. So one helps if you have absolutely no shame or sense of embarrassment. Uh, <laughs> because at the end of the day, they're the decision makers. They're going to decide if they want that government to continue or not to continue. Before we get to this episode, Amin and I had two massive favours to ask. We started this podcast on our passion to connect with interesting people with fascinating stories and sharing those stories with everyone so we can all learn from them. Now, what's truly fueling our growth and to help us share more stories with some very interesting people? One is our passion of storytelling and really wanting to hear people's stories because we generally believe in the power of sharing real human stories. But also, your word of mouth and sharing with your family and friends is just as powerful to help us have more reach to people out there. So please, do share it with anyone who you think might benefit from it. Currently, only a third of you that are listening to us are, have followed us on any whatever platform that you are uh, accessing to our podcast. So we would love to see more of you joining that cohort. So please, follow us on whatever platform you're hearing this message on. For now, let's get into the episode. Alison. You are a executive director, a lawyer. Kind of. Yeah. And you're, yeah, at some point. I have a law degree. I was never admitted to practice. Okay. Okay. By the time I finished the degree, I was like, oh, that's Oops. not for me. Okay. And a mother. Stepmum, but yeah. Stepmum. Great. That still counts. And what we want to know today, Ali and I, is who's Alison? When we remove all these titles aside for a minute, who is Alison? Ah, what a deep question to kick off on. Uh, I am, Alison is a curious problem solver. I'm a passionate South Australian and I'm really interested always in how I can help this place and the people in it thrive and grow, whether that's on like a micro level, just the people I work with or mentor or raise, um, or across the entirety of the state in some way. And I love the ocean and my cats and true crime. Love that. <laughs> Why do you love the ocean? Oh, uh, so... Um, I'm not a super athletic person, as my build may tend to give away, uh, but I've always been a really strong swimmer. Uh, my parents put my sister and I in swimming lessons from when we were very, very young. And then at various points throughout our lives, took us on these amazing camping holidays all around Australia. Great Barrier Reef when I was, I reckon, 11 or 12. Um, and I just love that it's a completely different world it's a completely quiet world and it's one of the few activities that i can do where i don't think about anything else while i'm doing it 
It's a form of meditation. Yeah, almost. I think it is for me. I'm not really good at the other forms of meditation. I'm too. Uh, I think I'm doing it poorly, and so I. I Your monkey mind's too active. Yeah, monkey mind's too active. Way too active. Hmm. At what point in your life did you discover that curiosity for oh, problem solving? That's a great question. Um, honestly, I think it's always been there. Uh, so my parents are, were, they're retired now, but they were both high school teachers. And so we grew up in a household that really valued learning and that if you wanted to find something out, uh, they wouldn't just give you the answer. You had to kind of... <laughs> go to a bit of effort to try and find it, right? And pre-internet, that was a bit of effort. I was a frequent uh, flyer at my local then, library and <laughs> school <laughs> library. Um, and I guess I've just, even now, I'm always just really interested in understanding sort of systems and how things work and how things interact and, yeah, motivations. And that goes across any number of topics on any given device, I have over a hundred tabs open at any time because at some moment I thought, yeah, I wonder, like, why is that called that? <laughs> or, uh, you know, um, what could I do to improve my gut microbiome? Uh, <laughs> <or> <laughs> any, I just, um, yeah, I'm just, I have always just been really passionate about learning things. And I guess the other element of that is because of the breadth of my interest, I find it really interesting when you see parallels in completely different situations or completely different sectors. You think, oh, that's interesting. I wonder if you could apply that over here like this, which I guess kind of leads me into my career in mm. government and in kind of formalised problem solving, yeah. if you call it that. I heard a really good thing the other day in a podcast. The host said that um, he imagines life as a series of dominoes the fall mm. that kind of leads you to where you are today. If you were to think about your life and your early childhood, what were the first few dominoes that dropped for you? Uh, so I think some of the first dominoes were, were just in my household, right? So I've told you amazing parents, both teachers. The reason that they were both teachers is because they both grew up in country South Australia, pretty working class households and teaching or nursing was the only course that you could get paid to study at the time. Right. So I think, and that kind of changed the trajectory of my parents' lives and accordingly of my life and my sister's life. And so I think that was one of the first dominoes for me around the importance of kind of government and politics and public policy and the programs that governments can deliver that are going to actually really meaningfully impact people's lives. Mm. Um, probably my next big domino was uh, I used to go out every Friday night with a friend of mine and uh, we'd go to the markets for dinner and she started school debating and it was on a Friday night and so I would go and watch her do debating before we went out to dinner and I was sitting there in the audience thinking, oh, I could do this. So next year, year nine, I enrol in debating at, at school. Um, and it became actually a really big part of my life. So I did debating all through school. I debated for the South Australian state schools team. And then when I got older, I coached them. Um, and Wow. 
judged for South Australia and for Australia at the world competitions as well. And that was a really massive domino for me for a couple of reasons. The first is it really helped me find my people, you know, like everyone's... You've your got tribe. Your tribe. And I hadn't really found them at school. Just to say I had a bad time, mm. I had friends, mm. but they just weren't kind of like interested in, mm. you know, why the stevedores were striking <laughs> or uh, like some of the more kind of nerdy political things that I was interested in. And I found this whole group of people who were super into those same things. Um, I found a, a way to engage in some of this curious concepts and problem solving right so a lot of debating two different sides which you could be asked to argue each one so the first thing that makes you do is really see the kind of nuance and complexity in a lot of different things but the second is you know a lot of debating topics were like you know we should lower the voting age to 16 or uh, legalise marijuana or they're, they're the same questions that governments and politicians grapple with and I was like yeah this is the stuff that I find super interesting uh, plus I'm a word nerd I'm not so strong on the maths and sciences so it was a really good fit for kind of things I was interested in the things I was good at um, and then was so the domino wasn't just participating in it as a debater. It was then shifting into, um, so when I finished school, I helped run the competition for other school students, uh, which was a really incredible experience in administration when you're aged like 18 and 19. I think at the time we had like over 400 teams participating and you had to make sure, you know, they never met the same opponent and lots of kind of organisational complexity. And then... I guess the coaching element as well for me was a way of, and you'll see a thread through this in my career, but finding these incredibly young, talented people and helping support them and um, give them the skills to kind of unlock that next opportunity and that next stage of growth. Sounds like that was a pretty big domino. It was a massive domino, honestly. And one of the, some of um, my school asked me to come back and talk to year nines one time. And they said, you know, do you have any advice? And I, my single piece of advice is if you're at school, do something outside of your school, right? Netball, debating, chess club, youth theatre, don't care. Um, because the connections that you'll make and the likelihood that you'll find your real people, your tribe, um, mm-hmm. is so much stronger than the kind of limited set of interactions you have in, at school. I want to take a step back. Before the debating domino, which sounded like a huge part of your life, and still mm. is probably part of your life, and we'll get to that later. <laughs> My abundant spare time. Yeah. Yep. Um, more broadly, how was your childhood? Um, it was really lovely. It was really warm and supportive. Um, I have uh, one sister, and we're still super tight. We take a holiday together every year. Um, uh, And although we didn't always have a lot of money, um, my parents were really committed to giving us opportunities. So I'm not sure if you would have had this where you grew up, but here we used to have these um, like book catalogues that would come to the school and you could choose which books you wanted. Um, And we didn't have a lot of spare cash as a family, but I was always allowed to get books. 
out of cattle. Uh, so I just a really um, we were really encouraged to find a path of happiness, but with an expectation of service and contribution that was like, I think because my parents were teachers, that you're not just doing it for yourself. You're not just doing it to climb to the top of the highest pile. You're doing it to help others as well. Uh, basically a purpose higher than yourself and yeah. a lot more. Not religious yeah. in any way, but yeah, a, a, a really strong sense of community. And not driven by a monetary value necessarily. No, I mean, teaching, exactly. you know. Yeah. It's a great example. Undervalued. Debating. When I when I think about debating, the first thing, the first word that comes to my mind is public speaking, and people are terrified of public speaking. People would rather die than yes. do mm -hmm. public speaking. So one helps if you have absolutely no shame or sense of embarrassment. Uh, <laughs> uh, but no, but honestly. The thing that made me not afraid of it was doing it over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. Um, and I still get a bit nervous when I have to speak with people who I know really well. I would rather speak in front of a thousand people that I don't know at all. Uh, so I would never let my mum come and watch me do debating. She ended up coaching a different team at my school because she had to be there because she had to drive me there. Um, but I, I was always really worried about the judgment of people close to me. Um, Why is that? Like anything, it's a flexible muscle. Why is that? Yeah. Oh, that's. I mean, that's something I've worked really hard to try to overcome. I'm not going to suggest mm. for a second that I have overcome it. I'm at least more aware of when I'm doing it now, which is half the battle. Um, I think because I just want praise and approval. I don't want to dis. I chronically hate disappointing people. That's probably the big real motivation, isn't it? Especially those you love. Especially those I love. I really don't like disappointing people. So I do grossly overcommit myself to lots of different things, partly because of the curiosity element and I'm excited about the possibility and partly because I don't, I don't, I don't want to disappoint anyone. Mm. I think it's a very natural thing for humans to want approval. Yeah. Right. And I always wonder where that starts from. And often I, I, I reflect on my own life and I think, if I didn't want the approval of so many people, I It'd wouldn't be, be where I am. It would be very freeing, but also I wouldn't be where I am today. No. Because a lot of the things that I did in my life, I'm like, I'm going to prove you damn wrong. Watch me. Yeah. Right? So it's almost a double-edged sword. <laughs> it is. And I've, had, I've always been really competitive as well. Mm. No, I'm not playing with me. No. <laughs> 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 um, but... I think that's part of it as well is, um, you know, like the debating example, I saw someone else do it and I thought, oh, I reckon I could do that. Or similarly, I was coasting sort of academically for a while until um, was at primary school, we didn't have prizes or anything like that. It was all, you know, everyone did a good job, great. I went, got to high school and I, at the end of year eight, they gave out a prize for the best student and I was like, are you shitting me? I didn't know there was a prize. Uh, 
get any money. You didn't get anything. <laughs> um, uh, but I, you know, thought, oh, I could do that. Uh, and then <laughs> determinedly applied myself to winning the prize for the remaining years of high <laughs> school. Uh, so... Um, yeah, it's a double-edged sword because I do think it has really pushed me into doing things that I wouldn't have done otherwise. On the other hand, I think it can push you towards things that are not authentically you, and it can, but they're an external idea of what success looks like. Um, and the older I get, the more I realise how short life is, how much I would rather be happy and energised than winning. What about being competitive? Look, I can't let go of that one completely. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's somewhat healthy to be competitive and 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 it really depends on the culture, what I actually notice as well. I think Eastern culture versus Western culture. Um, you know, I mean, a lot of people I grew up around are very competitive, right? So it was actually normal to be yeah. very competitive. And then I moved to Oz and then there was this like interesting comment, oh, you're a competitive, you're very competitive, aren't you? Yeah. And I'm like, why is that a thing to call out, right? And it was like a really interesting shift. It's like, wait a minute, like, okay, interesting. Yeah, and it can, I think, uh, be really negative when it's applied to some people. So women, for example, mm. that's one of the things I should have said, and who am I? I'm a feminist. Mm. Uh, women, for example, um, are penalised in a workplace if they're seen as being too ambitious or too competitive in a way that men are less so. Has it improved? <laughs> yes, it is improving. Oh, what right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Look, honestly, yeah, I would have expected better by now. Yeah. You know, still more CEOs named Andrew than women on ASX 300 companies. Mm, yeah, I saw that figure. You said something about tribe. Yeah. When you started debate, debating, you managed to find your tribe, people that you felt like you belong with. Yes. Right. How important is that in life? Oh, I think it is so important to find the people. So finding them was a critical moment for me in not trying to be something other than what I was, right? Mm. It was about acknowledging that I am a nerd, I like nerdy things, that's fine, because so do these other people. And, you know, everyone goes through that awkward teenage, like trying to be a cool kid, trying to be something that I just wasn't. And so finding my tribe was really important for me in authenticity and like freeing me up to be my authentic self um but it was also really important for me and this is another thing I care really deeply about in terms of providing like a network of people with different experiences who I could draw on when I needed it so obviously both my parents went to uni but by the time I went to uni their uni experience was some time ago and I would have found it really difficult to navigate that environment if I hadn't, through debating, had these friends who were a couple of years older than me who were still at the uni, that you know, but they'd been through like, oh, here's what to do if you don't agree with your mark or, you know, you enrolled in this course and two weeks in you're like, well, can you swap? You know, there's like a date that you could swap before and stuff. And I just think... 
Draw that file. <laughs> draw that file, exactly. Um, uh, <laughs> two subjects like that. Um, didn't pay for them on Hex, Mum, don't worry. Um, but I think that we really underestimate how important those social networks can be in helping people navigate good and bad times in their life um, and how strongly we rely on those people around us to help us through those times. I have a group of girlfriends and um, it's a bit silly. We call ourselves the, the Otto gang because otters hold each other's hands at night when they fall asleep so that no one of them can float off. And sometimes on the otter raft, you're the one that's at risk of floating off and sometimes it's someone else, but we're all holding on. That's amazing. I love that. that you know what that makes me think of, Alison? We live in a very interesting era. Social media has taken over our lives and we all tend to have these really superficial relationships and don't really know what it means like, what it feels like to have a deep, meaningful relationship with someone or don't have any, mm. right? Social media has really taken that away from us. Well, at least created an alternative, mm. which has become people's primary choice of mm. building relationships. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess it's really interesting because it can be a way of keeping in touch with people that those connections probably would have fallen away over time. A lot of friends who don't live in South Australia anymore, I only really keep up with them through social media. But you're right. I do really... You know, value the the deeper, mm. authentic. I think for someone like like yourself and and Amin and I, we can understand the difference, right? Yeah, but not. I'm thinking about these young younger people, right? They they're struggling. Yeah. I can see it. And and they, I mean, those apps are designed to mm. be sticky, to be compulsive, to be you know little pings of dopamine that are just hitting your brain over and over again, building a you know reward habit mm. around using them um but at the end of the day you know it's one of those connection is one of those core human needs and you've got to help people find it in a way that's meaningful um and there's a role for social media in that so we can say maybe you're not an avid social media user yeah. okay so what is your dose of dopamine oh what is my dose of dopamine <laughs> Good heavens. Uh, I mean, I, I need to get in the ocean at least at least a couple of times a year, um, for sure. And so I usually take a trip in the, in the middle of winter. I hate winter. <laughs> 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 I usually take a trip in the middle of winter to go swimming somewhere nice and warm. Oh, nice. Um, what are those other hits of dopamine? Uh, I think they're about, you know... Um, sense of accomplishment and getting something done, right? Do you ever, because, you know, sort of knowledge economy workers, right? It's hard sometimes at the end of the day to look and see, I did a thing today, I really made a difference. Every so often, you know, at work or because um, I still do a bit of volunteering and stuff as well, I think those experiences are really useful so that you can, like, have helped someone on the end of a phone or, you know, have bake day Hi, I enter in the Adelaide show. I'm going to win this year. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, something that, that you, you've actually got that shows 
tangibly, the tangible, yeah. The yeah. effort that you have put in, I think, is really good for that kind of little hit of dopamine as yeah, well. Yeah, hundred percent, I agree with that. Quick one: Can you please take a second and follow us on whatever platform you're listening to us from? I think we drifted a little bit. Let's we just did. bring it back, back, back to Alison's life. Take us through high school and university. Uh, so high school, once I kind of clicked into my debating and prize winning mode, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I guess, uh, you know, it became, I, I was good at school. I've always been kind of good at school. That doesn't make you smart necessarily. It just means you understand the system and how to achieve within the system. Um, so I had some close friends, but probably closer with my debating buddies, um, Really, really pushed myself really hard in high school because oh, we spend a lot of time telling people in finishing high school that if they don't get the perfect university score, they're basically going to sleep under a bridge. Um, and I was really committed to studying law at that time. I thought that, that was the thing I really wanted to do. Um, and, and it had a really high entrance score. And so I absolutely flogged myself in year 12 and I missed it. Just. Uh, so I enrolled in my arts degree and then was able to transfer into law at the 12-month mark, which was like, so it was fine. You get there in the end, right? But I wish someone had told me that, that I didn't need to go so hard um, and I would have had a much easier, less stressful time in year 12. Was that, was that your first time you had actually encountered failure in life? Yeah, it was... Yeah, probably. It was a really, for me, it felt like a really personal, significant failure, right? That I had set myself this goal and I had applied myself really hard. I, it's notwithstanding that not super good at science, I did the International Baccalaureate, which means you have to do a science and a maths. I did 20 years worth of physics practice exams. Wow. <laughs> I'm falling across the IB system. And still sucked. <laughs> Uh, I had a great teacher who invested a lot of time in trying to help me understand the concepts, but I just just couldn't quite get there. So, yeah, it was a really profound experience of disappointment. Um, but I think coupled with um, much, much later in life, I was diagnosed as having a general anxiety disorder. Uh, on reflection, there are a lot of things about that time and... and up until my diagnosis that I look back on and think that was clearly the anxiety um, that, you know, you just catastrophize things. You think, oh, this is the worst possible outcome here. You know, I may as well <laughs> just give up and go and work as a garbage woman, uh, you know, because I can't get the career that I want. Um, so that was a really profound sense of disappointment, but overcame it through a different pathway in the end. So I think that was a useful exercise for me in understanding that someone once drew me this graph and so this is not going to translate terribly well on a podcast so you <laughs> might need to look at the video for this bit where she's like oh you know I thought my life would be a b c d like a really clear linear path to success but actually like I hit all of those things but to get them I had to kind of go in this s-shaped motion to kind of hit each of them I think that was my first big kind of s-curve to go oh okay yep um and then uni, uh, I really enjoyed uni because I love learning. And if I won the lottery tomorrow, I would 
study more <laughs> because I don't need to, but I'm curious. I'm really interested, you know, in learning about di- things I didn't study or didn't learn. Um, so uni was um, a good experience for me. I did lots and lots of extra things as well. So I was running the debating competition. I was adjudicating debates. I did law review, which is like a sketch comedy show that law students put on every year. Um, I worked at the same time. I worked in the Bar Smith Library. Um, so it was um, what I loved about it and kind of how it lines up with my current career and lifestyle, I suppose, is just the constant sense of variety. I get bored really easily with just the same topic. I'm not a deep dive person. I'm like skim, boom, 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 across the top. Um, more of a generalist. More of a, absolutely a generalist. I like to say advanced generalist. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so uni experience was pretty good, although I finished my arts degree, which is the part I really liked, right? It was about politics. It was about policy. Um, and I was left with, I think at that stage, I had another three years of my law degree to go. And I was not having fun studying law because law is really interesting because it attracts really big picture people but actually the practice of law is very detail oriented and I am not very detail oriented um so I really liked the kind of philosophical parts of it um but struggled a bit more with the um details the detail and the particularly by the final year they made you pretend to run this whole case and off that was not my finest university showing. Um, so it was really interesting because I kind of was in this weird midpoint where I knew I had to finish it because I was in so much debt at this point. I may as well make something <laughs> out of it. Um, uh, but I really, it was one of those first moments where you go, actually, this is really not a career for me, which was interesting because almost everyone leaves law and goes to become a barrister. Uh, leaves debating rather and goes to become a barrister and so I had to be kind of like oh no actually um yeah in retrospective did your first failure when you didn't get high enough score to get into law right away what did you learn from that like what did it like if you were to sum it up as a few lessons how would you I do learned that? that there's never one pathway there's always other pathways mm. and I learned that you, you can't just solve everything with hard work. It sounds a bit silly, but I was, you know, I threw myself into study and it wasn't enough. And that's fine. But as a kind of natural born perfectionist, don't want to disappoint anyone. I had to really learn that some things you just won't hit them. You're not going to get there. No amount of hard work is going to do it. At least not the first time around. Not the first time around. So opportunities for growth, different pathway to get there. But also, you know, um, I wish I had invested less effort on all those physics practice exams. That was time that I could have spent... Debating. Debating. I was doing ballet. I was coaching netball at the same time. I was (laughs) grossly (laughs) overcommitted. (laughs) Um, Yeah, and, and on reflection, I really felt like that was... What that disappointment taught me was that it wasn't... I wasn't making good strategic choices about how I was investing my time. 
And is there any other significant event in life where you feel you've disappointed yourself but then reflected back on it and said, Oh, actually. So many, like so many, you know, all those jobs that you apply for and didn't get and at the time, oh, you have a massive, massive sook about it. But on reflection, you weren't meant to get them for a reason and it put you on a slightly different path or helped you find a different boss or a mentor who subsequently becomes a person who, you know, really helps propel you forward. So I think it's really hard in those moments. I don't handle disappointment well. I don't mm. know who does. But um, it's hard to see the learning moment as you're having it. But it's always there. There is a... I had something the other day. I'm not sure if you know, do you know Naval Ravikant? Yeah. He said something that really resonated with me. He said, if, imagine what you can do if you were not anxious. Yes. How do you deal with the anxiety that you said you were diagnosed with? Uh, I'm medicated. Yeah. That's a good start. Yeah. Um, I saw a therapist mm. who was really helpful at giving me some strategies. But genuinely, one of the things that, one of the practices that I have adopted um, that I find really useful is I keep track of all the times I did something that I didn't think I could do. And so when you're having that moment of like, oh, this is going to be a disaster, I can't do this, it's going to, uh, I'm going to be a huge public failure and I, my name's going to be on the advertiser, I'm going to have to <laughs> move overseas and <laughs> live in shame. I think, well, actually, no, you thought that about this other project and actually it was fine. It was more than fine. It was great. Um, so... I think really trying to keep track of all the times that I've had that sense of worry, but then that hasn't been the outcome and has been really useful. Like I literally keep a notebook with examples in it so that when I'm like, oh. Often, sorry, but often the anxiety and, and um, imposter syndrome kind of goes hand yeah. to hand, don't they? Yeah. Um, and yes, although for me it was less that people would think I was a fraud. Mm. And more that I would just stuff something up so catastrophically that I could like literally never show my face in public again. That's probably my key <laughs> sort of core anxiety. Um, yeah, but it but it is related. I think that sense that you don't know what you're doing. Although the older you get, the more you realise no one does really. I was going to say earlier, what you're doing is actually incredible. And it's something I was recently taught to start doing um, by this amazing coach. And I think he calls it capturing your peak moments mm. in life and actually capturing every single one of them in a notebook or somewhere. And the idea is um, every time you're about to face a new one, you go back to the notebook and you go through that list and it's almost guaranteed like nine or ten times. You're going to go, I've done something a lot harder. Exactly. Then what I'm about to do right now, and the mental state that it puts you in is is just next level. Yeah. Um, and funny enough, um, you would know this because you were in the room when we flew over to Sydney, and no one's going to relate to this, but there was, yeah. um, you know, this event where Alice and I were in the same room, and I did actually try that trick, and it did work. 
See, I wouldn't have got a sense of nervousness from you at all. I was very nervous. You were (laughs) smooth as butter. Thank you. How do you think so? But that's the other thing, right? So I read this, oh, what was that? It was like a podcast or something I was watching the other day. I can't tell you because I have a hundred tabs open. But um, uh, it was a study where they made a guy walk around a university wearing a band t-shirt that was really embarrassing. I think it was Barry Manilow, but imagine like Nickelback or whatever. And so they make them walk all around the campus, university student, and the university student had to guess how many people noticed them in their embarrassing shirt. And people grossly, the people wearing the shirt grossly overestimated the amount of people that actually noticed them. And so I guess reflecting on this, this, this same room that we were in in Sydney, you were feeling all that, but it was very internal and it ne- I would never have noticed and a lot of that kind of sense of like, oh, my God, I've, I've stuffed something up or it wasn't as perfect as it could have been. You're going to notice, but no one else is. Mm. I think so. it's, 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 it's an inbuilt thing within humans where you catastrophize things more worse yeah. than what it is by 100 times. Yeah. Depending where you are in your life. So what you're both mentioning is that you've kind of outperformed your anxiety by proven data that you can do things. <laughs> yeah, that's one way of looking at it. And, and I think just doing a better job of knowing when it's happening, knowing what is happening and having people around me who are way less anxious than I am. Mm. I chose an excellent husband who's like calm about almost everything, um, which is really helpful when you're a person who's inclined to be a bit anxious. Um, when did you meet your now husband? Uh, we met when we were in our mid-twenties. Rundle Mall. Wow. So you've been together for roughly how long? 15 years nearly, I think. Amazing. Something around there. Yeah. That's amazing. amazing. Um, in your initial answers, uh, you repeated one word quite often and it oh, was no. government. Yes. And then you went on about saying about how your parents raised you, the happiness through service. Yes. How much, how much did your parents' teaching of happiness through service actually influence your career choices post-uni? Um, I think quite a lot, actually. Mm. Um, I, the only thing they wouldn't let us be was teachers, <laughs> uh, which is a shame because I actually think me and my sister were made excellent teachers. Um, but um, my sister also works in the government sector as well. Um, And I think if I didn't work in government, I would probably be in not-for-profit or something like that. I think think it's almost about a sense of duty that you have a responsibility to the community around you to help. And I love problems. I love challenges and I love a sense of, I guess I'm always thinking about how could you make it better, right? What what is the, I love change, I love reform and I love improvement. And so that lends itself really nicely to sort of that kind of work that I do in in public policy and in government in a way that it doesn't... I I can't get excited about improvement where it's like, how do I go from selling 200 widgets to selling 400 widgets to make someone else money? That doesn't... That doesn't Mm. speak to my values around contribution. Mm. Do you think the private sector today 
is lacking a lot of the values that we all might be holding closer to our chest, but we go out into this private corporate world and all of a sudden we're in this mask and we're just executing. Yeah. Um, I'm really glad to see like an increased trend towards ESG and, you know, because there's heaps of commercial operations, profit-making commercial operations that are also doing good in the world, right? They don't need to be mutually exclusive, but they can be if you only value as a shareholder or anyone else, if you're only valuing the kind of the profit margin and the dividend. So to attribute value to other things, you have to actually find a way of measuring and capturing that value. And I think there's a really positive trend toward that in the corporate environment. I think to go to your point about putting on a mask, though, I still think I am afforded a degree of latitude to be a leader in a way that is authentic to me in government. I don't know. I've never worked in the private sector. I don't know that I would have that same latitude to um, express wear yourself, loud earrings, and express myself, and play music in the office. And, mm. and I think that by forcing people to adopt a kind of consistent view of what what good looks like, what success looks like, you lose so much in diversity. There's so much, so many people that you are counting out of leadership roles. And we know that the more diverse any place is, that profit-making companies are, the more profits that they make. And so I just think there's, there's still a fair bit of work to do around making sure that people can bring their whole selves to work wherever they work. Really curious to ask you because you've been working in the public sector for a very long time and there are probably a lot of people now contemplating their careers and listening to this. And the advice that I hear in the private sector a lot is, it's too slow. Rethink your options. What do you say to these people? So the thing that I think, so I've worked with a lot of people who've come from the private sector into government, and yeah, it is slow, but it's slow for a good reason. It's slow because I'm not spending, I'm spending your money, right? I'm spending money that I have collected you know, the government has collected from taxpayers in South Australia, there should be rigour around how that is done. It shouldn't just be sort of willy-nilly, you know, agile, fail fast. It can be, but when you fail fast with someone else's money, they need to accept that risk. And so we talk a lot in government about public value, right, the sense that you have to bring the community that you're trying to serve on the journey of what you want to do with you because at the end of the day they're the decision makers they're going to decide if they want that government to continue or not to continue um so yeah i accept the the proposition that it is slower than the private sector but i think that it has to be um on the other hand i think that we have a reach and a scale and an opportunity to create value in a community, in a society, in an economy that you don't get in other sectors. This is the only place you can make a law, right? Working for government or politics. Um, 
So I think there's balance, but there is plenty of opportunity and opportunity for people to have kind of portfolio careers that come in, you know, thinking of that S-curve we did before, that come in and out of government as the case may be. Thanks for sharing that. I like that. Mm. I'm mindful of time. That, that time is so quick. It's 45 minutes already. Wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> Alison, what is the best question I'm going to ask you right now? I guess, are you saying, what haven't I talked about that I would like to talk about? What, what I think would, is important? What haven't you talked about that you'd like to talk about? Uh, probably. The role of people in my career and in my life as not just mentors but sponsors and what I think is an obligation on me now and other people as we get more senior to, to provide that same sponsorship for the talent that they see coming up. Um, mentors are great, but actually you need someone who's going to go, do you know who would be perfect for that job? It's a mean, put him in it. Um, people who just, again, go into that sense of anxiety. One of the great comforts I've always had in my career was from time to time, I've had the most incredible bosses who pushed me way out of my comfort zone, but I knew would have my back no matter what. Um, and so I didn't feel a fear of failure because I knew they would stop me from failing. But they, but beyond that, they weren't going to tell me what to do. <laughs> right? So they were going to let me kind of set my own path and create an opportunity for growth for myself and for what I was doing with... Uh, an incredible set of support and I think that's one thing that I don't talk about enough which is in a way giving back to all those who yeah. Yeah. helped you maybe it's probably their kids or their family and friends yeah so I was once on a panel for women leaders in government or something and we were asked what was the most what piece of work were we the most proud of and the women before me had both worked on, like, one had done this incredible bit of legislative reform, the other one had achieved this massive negotiation with the Commonwealth. And I have done some of those things, but the thing I am most proud of is that I have helped people grow in their career and that when I'm gone, they'll still be there doing the same thing for other people. That's very powerful. That's the best definition of leadership I've heard in a long time. Alison, thank you so much. You showed us love by the quality time you gave us today. So we really, really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. I'm sure this episode has really resonated with you, but we'd love to know which part. We would love to get your feedback. So please do reach out to us via our website or any of our social media platforms. You can find these through any of the links attached to this episode.